Chapter 14. I am her hero. She is my heroine. I used to work at one of those. Really? Yep. You worked at a peep show? Uh, it is at this point in a conversation when I can sense the gears in their heads beginning to turn. So, uh, did you have to, uh... They work up, I guess, only half the gumption required to ask the question because, with few exceptions, their voices trail off before they can ever quite complete their query. So, did you have to, you know, mop the, uh, you know, mop up the cum? I respond indignantly and slightly louder than necessary. It's an old habit. Plus, I like the awkward pauses, nervous chuckles, and the gathering and sequestering of children to a safer area of whatever barbecue or social gathering we might be attending. No, we had a janitor for that. I couldn't tell you what his last name is. The boss didn't know it. Otis was a strictly cash-under-the-table type of character. A 71-year-old black gentleman unable to make it on his social security, he was spending his golden years pushing a mop at the Champ Arcade. He was a throwback to another time, the product of a small town, or perhaps of Seattle, when Seattle itself was a small town. He was a widower with a handful of kids and an even bigger handful of grandkids living with him. Maybe all that family eased the loss of his wife with her rose garden, her love of a sunny day, and the oatmeal she made him every morning. He was dapper even in his work overalls. He had a smile, a tip of his hat, and a how-do-you-do for anyone, shaking hands with everyone in the neighborhood on his way into work like he was running for mayor. He had my vote. Otis, like so many countless, underpaid men and women of this world who mop up shit and blood from the floors of hospitals and slaughterhouses, did his unspeakable work with grace and dignity. It's interesting how what some Eastern religions consider the essence of life itself, upon hitting the floor of the back room, becomes a vile and untouchable deposit. And so it comes to pass that when someone these days asks me who mopped up the cum, my answer is a man who is my better in every way. Otis was who they had in mind when they came up with that whole the meek shall inherit the earth thing, so imagine my surprise to learn he was actually the only truly evil genius I had ever met. At 5.30 a.m., there were two cars left. Wayne Newtons and the perpetrators. I went out to the parking lot every hour or so after the unpleasantness to check on my unfortunate quarry's vehicle. It was a cream-colored late-model Volvo. I tried the key. Poor son of a bitch. I pictured him hobbling out to his car, realizing he left his key, then crawling off to a corner to die. Maybe he hopped in a cab. Maybe he was looking through the scope of a rifle at me right now from a downtown apartment or shitty hotel room. Maybe he was tipping a Jack Daniels bottle to his lips, trying to figure out if I was the one who maimed him. Maybe he was shifting the ice pack on his burnt dick, still wearing the one shoe and a wet sock. Was I getting soft? Wayne was still laughing his ass off. But he didn't hear the howls and shrieks up close and personal like I did. I didn't exactly want to apologize, but I at least wanted the guy to know I wasn't the kind of person who went around pepper-spraying genitals willy-nilly. I didn't suppose a handshake and a promise not to do that again would suffice. 
The only comfort I could offer was to not have his car towed. Maybe he could take solace in knowing that the worst night of his life was behind him now, and the rest of us only had ours to look forward to. Otis always appeared promptly at 6 a.m. after stopping at the McDonald's around the corner for hash browns and coffee. One morning, a couple of weeks before, an acquaintance of mine named Zach had stopped by to say hello after a particularly rough night out. Or so I thought. It wasn't unusual for this kind of thing to happen. After all, everyone knew I worked there, and it was an interesting place to drop by if you happened to be stumbling around wasted in the wee hours. I say uh, acquaintance as opposed to friend because my only interaction with him was in matters of drugs. When I saw him enter, disheveled and weary, I smiled and waited for his half-hearted inquiry as to how my night was going. Instead, he asked if Otis was there. Otis? How do you know Otis? I asked, puzzled. He's a friend of the family. The words replayed in my head as he spotted Otis and darted over to the janitor's closet to talk with him. Now, I knew that Otis was a friend to everyone he met, and I knew that given the choice between talking with me and talking to Otis, most people would have had a more enjoyable time talking to Otis. However, the quickness with which Zach had answered, the immediate stare at nothing as the words fell out of his mouth, befuddled me. I watched them shake hands and have their quick conversation, scratching my head like mad. Why did Zach just give me a junkie's lie? I cornered Otis as soon as Zach bolted out the door. What was that all about? Oh, what you talking about, Charlie? He asked sheepishly. I know that guy, Otis. The two of you were not discussing your favorite window cleaners. No? No, sir. Uncomfortably for me, Otis seemed genuinely scared. It's not my intention to get you busted, my friend. I'm interested in what you have to sell. Otis produced a handful of little colored balloons, and we both smiled. I didn't suppose I'd be waiting for hours at First and Pike ever again. His trade was fentanyl citrate, a synthetic painkiller prescribed to terminally ill patients or those with chronic pain. It was later discovered to cause spinal cord problems, but I didn't know that at the time and wouldn't have paid attention to a Surgeon General's warning any fucking way. Because it was in white powder form, it was easier to call it China White on the street. Most dope in Seattle, the entire West Coast for that matter, was black tar from Mexico. Since junkies aren't big on conversation when buying drugs on First and Pike, Otis simply let them believe they were getting a rare taste of the Far East. The effect was virtually the same, so no harm done. In the Volvo, I smoked a cigarette and watched him conduct his early morning business. He took his post at the bus stop and was greeted by one client after another with hearty handshakes or hugs, followed by a quick and pleasant good day before the next customer stepped up to embrace their old friend. That was all he needed. There was never a mob scene to attract attention, just a steady stream of friends. And these were not just the tattooed, leather-clad hipsters I was accustomed to. Housewives and businessmen were thrown in, creating an oddly normal-looking cross-section of the community. Who knew there was a drug underground beneath the drug underground I knew so well? It was the perfect cover. His work was so ghastly, so unpleasant, that most people would just as soon pretend he didn't exist than to put much thought into what purpose his vocation served. 
No cop would have wanted to follow him around while he did his repugnant duties, and no one would ever drop a dime on him because he was the kindest man in the world. It would have been a goddamn crime on humanity. Here was a man the respectable people willfully ignored, and the rabble strove to protect as if his goodness were the only holy thing left in the universe. This, friend, is a cover. Did I ever tell you about the time I shined Ray Charles' shoes outside the Black and Tan Club in 1947, he would ask me, offering me a peppermint candy? I'd take the candy, never even suspecting he was commenting on my breath. He was a good man. He gave me a dollar for a shoe shine that cost a quarter. Then he tipped me a dollar, too. It was the craziest thing I ever saw. Tell the truth now. Did I ever tell you that story? Dozens of times, Otis, but I always let you tell it. It's goddamn embarrassing, Wayne blurted out, pounding his fist on the bar. It was 8.15 in the morning, and we were at the turf. The turf was the shithole's shithole, packed every morning with hard hats and fishmongers, assholes and dogfuckers, alcoholics, one and all. It was offensive everywhere you turned, from its wretched fluorescent lighting to its modern country music-ridden jukebox to the ancient foulness of a hundred thousand Marlboros that had been smoked there. But the drinks were cheap and it opened at 6 a.m., the only bar downtown that was open for a beer after work. Nickel and dime, penny ante bullshit, Wayne spat, crushing his Budweiser can. He was talking about our scam. We had thought we had a pretty good thing going until Otis revealed how Bush League our criminality really was. Our cash register stand was a good 12 inches above the retail floor. We towered over our customers, making them uncomfortable, making them feel unwelcome, inferior. When the average Joe walked into a porn store, he was already nervous, so we made him feel even more so. Yes, we tended to have less shoplifting this way, but the unexpected and more important benefit was that customers were often in such a hurry to get the hell out of there, they would leave their change behind. It could have been just a random bit of change, but after discovering this phenomenon, we learned to move slowly behind the register, to speak loudly, to make the buying experience all the more embarrassing. We never had to worry about nurturing return customers. As the out-of-town businessman raced for the door, leaving behind his $22.45 and change, we dutifully do our part by muttering, Hey, buddy, don't forget you're under our breath. They rarely came back for it. They would never use a credit card for fear of a paper trail the missus could find. Add this up over the night, and we were pocketing an extra $100 each. Tack on to that the occasional kickback from pointing a regular in the direction of a dancer who might be willing to give him a hand job in the parking lot, and we thought we were doing pretty well. Now, with an even conservative estimate putting over two grand in Otis's pocket every day before he took his morning coffee, we felt ambushed. I watched Wayne drain another beer in silence, feeling a shit-ton of dread and responsibility for what he was thinking. I had to act quickly. Maybe we should go into business with him, I pretended to think out loud. Wayne's ears perked up and a slow smile crept across his thick face. I knew I had derailed his visions of extortion or strong-arm robbery, if only temporarily.